Today we're continuing our series in the book of Colossians. We've been in this now for several weeks, and we are picking up in in chapter 2. And today the title of the sermon is to experience spiritual freedom from the cross. Uh, I want you to really experience spiritual freedom this morning that comes only from the cross of Christ. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you experience spiritual freedom? What do you think? How would you define spiritual freedom? Well, I think I'd define it by asking these four questions. All right, and these aren't in your notes, so you just have to listen. These are the four questions I would ask you. Have you laid down at the foot of the cross your past sinfulness, and are you free from the guilt of their memories? Number two. Have you experienced forgiveness from Christ that has empowered you to be free from self-incrimination? Number three, have you been released from the bonds of repeated sinful behaviors? And number four, have you been freed from the dependence on the opinions and the criticism of others? Now, folks, while I think most Christians would obviously say that they believe in the gospel, they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, they believe in what Christ did for us, the reality is I don't think most Christians experience this kind of spiritual freedom. I want to talk about that today because I think it's really important. And Paul talks about that here in Colossians. From this basic uh, spiritual freedom comes our ability to love and accept ourselves, to give affirmation and esteem to others and then to live with confidence and faith in the future. So it's important. I want you to leave today having received the ability to be totally and completely spiritually free in Christ Jesus. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2. Today we're going to take a look at verses 6 through 15. And I just want to read through it first. I think it's good to just read through the scripture and then let's come back and study it a little bit. So we're going to pick up in Colossians chapter 2, verse 6. Here's what God's word says. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross." He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, folks, in this passage, I see three really big principles that I want us to talk today. And the first one uh, is this. Grow up in the truth of the gospel that saved you. Grow up in the truth of the gospel that saved you. Let's look back at verses 6 and 7. Here's what Paul writes to these people at this church. 
He says, therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He's saying, listen, just as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so we know he's speaking to Christians, in the same manner that you received Jesus, walk in him. The same way you gave your life to him, live in him. Saying in the same way that we receive the gospel, we should receive his life for us by walking in his teachings and his ways. In other words, folks, it's not enough that you come to uh, Jesus and give your life to him. That's not God's plan. The Great Commission isn't to go and make converts. It's to go and make disciples. God's expectation is that we don't remain little spiritual babies our whole lives, but we grow up in him. But we have to do that in the same way that we receive Christ as our Savior. By the way, the opposite's not true. If a person tries to walk in his ways, that does not, that does not necessarily mean that they have truly received him. In other words, if a person is just trying to be a good person, and they, even if they read the Bible and they say, well, I'm going to love people like Jesus did, and I'm going to care about things like Jesus did, I'm going to do good stuff like Jesus did, but they've never really given their life to him and, and received him as their savior, they won't be able to do that. They won't have the power to do it. The power only comes by connecting to him, by giving our lives to him. That's when we start to have the ability then to walk in him. We only have that power to walk after receiving his spirit. But the more we walk in Christ, folks, the more we're firmly rooted and established in the faith. When we see this phrase in this scripture, established in him just as you have been taught, we see how critical it is to be soundly taught proper doctrine of the faith. That's why it's critical to be part of a Bible-believing community where we can be taught sound doctrine, where we can learn it, where we can share it with others. And at the end of this passage, it says, and the more you learn and understand all of the implications of the gospel, the more you abound in thanksgiving. The more I understand the gospel, I mean really understand it, all the implications of it, man, the more thankful I am for it. Now, I was 12 years old when I gave my life to Christ. I understood the basic parts of the gospel. I understood that I was a sinner. I understood that I couldn't do anything to take care of my sin myself. And so I had to put my faith and trust in what Jesus did on the cross by dying on the cross for my sins. I had to put my faith and trust in that and that alone to save me, to take care of my sin problem. I understood that at 12. But I'm telling you, uh, as the years have gone on and I have learned deeper things about God, deeper things about the gospel, deeper, deeper things about Jesus, it has become sweeter and sweeter to me. Uh, my faith is, is more and more important. It, the gospel just demands this expression of thankfulness because I really am starting to, I think probably at this point in my life, I'm just beginning to really understand all of the implications and how profound it is that the creator of the universe cared about me and loved me enough to give up his son. I understood that concept intellectually, but until I had a child, I didn't really understand that kind of love. I do now. But folks, listen, it's important for us to commit ourselves to growing up in the truth of the gospel, the same gospel that saved us. 
The second big principle I see here is this. Do not fall for false doctrine that will steal your spiritual freedom away from you. Look at verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Remember us saying, and when we started this study in Colossians, that Paul was writing to this church for some specific reason, but it wasn't because of their faith, hope, and love. Uh, because they were somehow wanting in their faith, hope, and love. He, he basically said in the very beginning, hey, listen, you're doing really good in your faith. You're doing really good in your hope. You're doing really good in your love. But he's writing to them for a specific purpose. We're just beginning to find out what that purpose is. We don't know specifically what the false doctrine is that's creeping into the church, but he's warning them not to fall for false doctrine that will take their minds and their spirits captive. There is a philosophy that is noble and supportive to our faith, and that is the study and practice of God's word in God's community with the power of God's spirit. But folks, there is also the philosophy of deception that is based on man's wisdom, which may sound plausible and sometimes even Christian, but it is in competition with God's wisdom and God's word. This may refer, we don't know for sure what this refers to. This may refer to the Jewish faith and, and a culture that continually kind of crept into the early church and was based on the tradition of men. It may refer to the pagan religious teachings of the Roman culture when it says the elemental spirits of this world. We really don't know exactly what it is. And I think Paul's being led by God to be unspecific for a reason. Because the lies that were coming into the church then are different than the lies that are coming into the church now. And this is a universal principle for all time, for all places, for all churches. It doesn't matter what the false doctrine is. The bottom line, folks, is this. Any doctrine that wants to coexist in our minds in opposition to the gospel and the word of God will steal our spiritual freedom if we latch on to it. Now you may say to yourself, well, yeah, I, who, who, who believes any false doctrine? That's silly. Well, listen, there are many false quasi-Christian religions that teach about another Jesus or another salvation and, and are not simply different denominations, folks. They're the philosophies of men which are based on lies. Any other way to heaven other than faith in Jesus Christ is based on a lie. We have to purge from our minds uh, these ideas because a person uh, who, you know, sometimes we, okay, like for instance, okay, we know people who believe in God's existence. They believe that Jesus was the son of God. In other words, they believe in his personhood, who he was, but they're not going to heaven. They haven't put their faith and trust in Jesus. They haven't given their lives to him. They simply know about a concept of God. But we go to their funerals and we say, well, at least he's in a better place. No, he isn't. He's not in a better place. We need to get those, we need to quit saying stupid stuff like that. And I'm not talking about being rude at a funeral and walking up and going, yeah, shame he's in hell. I'm not, I'm not talking about being an idiot. Okay, I'm not talking about being an idiot. All I'm saying is, folks, we got to quit saying these doctrinal things that aren't right, these things that aren't true to God's word. There are literally hundreds of philosophies that seem Christian that are conscious to spiritual freedom. Things like the prosperity gospel, 
which promises health, wealth, and happiness for following Jesus, when we know this is contrary to God's word, and it creeps into our thinking. I would challenge you, what would it be like to stand face-to-face with Paul and say, you know, Paul, if you just get right with Jesus, you'd have all the money you need, you'd have a new car, and you wouldn't have all this prison problem if you'd just stop being a knucklehead. I mean, think about that. That's just a silliness. Folks, that stuff creeps in. The replacement theology, which suggests that the church has somehow replaced Israel as God's historical chosen people, so that the promises that apply to Israel historically apply to the church. Ecumenism, which pushes for the unity of all who call themselves Christians under this banner of love and acceptance and tolerance, tolerance, which really is a watered-down gospel and a powerless Savior that will save no one. If I see one more of those coexist stickers, I'm going to lose my mind. By the way, if you have one, just take it off, okay? <laughs> the, the I'm spiritual but not religious movement, which I see thousands of times on Facebook, which professes to love God but despises his church whom he died for. The Hebrew Roots Movement, which is a newer version of putting the burden of the law back on Christians who are free from it. The New Age Movement, which mixes the practice of psychics and horoscopes and all this other nonsense with Christianity to produce a whole different philosophy. Paul's saying, folks, pay attention. Be careful. This stuff is going to creep into your minds and your church. You're not even going to know it. Only listen to philosophy which comes from Christ and according to his word. I know I'm getting a little wound up, sorry. But, well, no, I'm not. Because uh, this is important. And by the way, there are things that slip into our, 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 our Bible-believing churches that we don't even know are slipping in. Three times this week, I've had conversations, or maybe in the last two weeks, I've had conversations with people uh, about the age of accountability. And, 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 and almost all Baptists believe in some age of accountability. Find that in the Scripture. Show me where the Bible teaches this. Show me in the Bible where, where it says that, hey, children who don't reach some age of understanding the gospel, uh, they get a pass. Now, I'm not saying they don't get a pass, but you can't find it. And when people point to scriptures uh, like, well, G- you know, Jesus said, suffer the little children unto me. Let Listen, Jesus was saying the kingdom of heaven is like this. He wasn't saying that the kingdom of heaven is full of little kids. He was saying the kingdom of heaven is full of kids like this who have a simple faith. And by the way, those kids that he was talking about were old enough to understand sin and the gospel, otherwise they couldn't have faith. So the real truth of the Bible is, it doesn't tell us what happens to babies when they die. Now I know for some of you that's a shock. But listen folks, there are just some, the Bible does not answer every question. It answers a whole lot of questions, but it doesn't answer every question and we need to just be okay with that. I just trust God. Listen, I've... I love the movie Rudy, and I love that one scene where he says, he goes to this priest, and he says, hey, have I done everything to be on this football team? Have I ever done everything to get into this college? And the priest says to him, Rudy, in all my years of studying doctrine and theology, I know two things for sure. One, there is a God, and two, I'm not him. I agree. Okay? Folks, Paul is warning us here, don't fall for this false doctrine because it will steal away the very spiritual freedom that Christ has bought us. Lastly, I want you to see that it's important for us to embrace and live in the freedom that Christ bought for us when he nailed our sins to the cross. 
Read with me verses 9 through 15. Here's what it says. Paul writes, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in your trespasses, now listen, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, Paul reminds them at the very beginning, he says, don't forget who Christ is. He's the deity. He's God in the flesh. He is God incarnate. He reminds them before Christ, they were spiritually dead in their sins. Folks, we have to just remember this. We've got to make sure that we don't ever get some kind of hyper-spiritual view of ourselves that, that somehow we're better than everybody else because we've heard the gospel. We need to remember that, man, if it's just up to us, We'd be in trouble. In fact, when people say, well, you know, I feel terrible things around the world, and I just wish God would be fair. Folks, the last thing I want is for God to be fair with me. Whoo! Whoo! <laughs> That's not good. He then talks about spiritual circumcision, which is greater than physical circumcision, which leads us to believe that some form of Jewish doctrine was creeping into the church. But I want us to focus on verses 13, 14, and 15 for, for the last few minutes today to understand this spiritual freedom that Christ has given us, but somehow we refuse to embrace. Look at verse 13 again. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Forgiven us all our trespasses. Folks, forgiveness came simultaneously, simultaneously with being made alive. Jesus provided forgiveness. He offers forgiveness for all of our sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins were forgiven the moment we received Christ with no spot or tiny remnant even left behind. Yet we have a tendency to nail our sins to the cross and ask for forgiveness and then tomorrow come back and ask forgiveness again and then the next day come back and ask for forgiveness again. Folks, the Bible says that, that when God gives us forgiveness, our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Now you get on the equator and you go east and you tell me when you stop. Never. Never. You go east forever. Just looping the earth Forever. It's silliness, it's silliness for us, and actually it's a lack of faith on our part to continue to ask for forgiveness for things that we've already been forgiven for. And Jesus died for, to give us forgiveness for all of our sins in the past, no matter how long they've been or how recent they've been, the things that we committed earlier today or are committing now or will commit later today in the present, or the things in the future, they're already all forgiven. Now, some people, times I get this conversation, I've had this conversation about five times in the last two weeks too. Uh, now, so what happens if I serve Jesus my whole life 
and then I'm, 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 I'm driving a little too fast maybe, and I run a red light, and I get killed in a car accident, and the very last thing I did was I, I broke the law, and I didn't get a chance to ask for forgiveness. Do I go to hell? No. <laughs> no. Okay? Listen, your salvation, your forgiveness of sins is not based on you remembering every single thing you've ever done and making sure you name them off to God. All of your sins, if you gave your life to Jesus in that split second of time, folks, in the twinkling of an eye when you pass from death to life, all of your sins are paid for. All of them are forgiven. You can't commit a sin that hasn't already been forgiven. And yet, we beat ourselves up over and over about the things that we just can't let go of. Look at verse 14. So says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Jesus paid our debt. Now, it was customary in the Roman judicial system to post a crime for which a prisoner was in prison for uh, on, the, on the cell door. Then when he was released, he would receive a certificate of debt that was stamped paid in full. So in other words, if I get a year in prison for stealing something, I go into the jail cell, and on, my, on the door of my jail cell, they, they post this thing, Michael's in prison uh, for stealing. But after that year, when I get out of prison, they give me that certificate with a paid-in-full stamp on it. And the reason they do that is as I go through life now, as I run into people, and people go, hey, you're that thief guy. Aren't you supposed to be in prison? I can pull that out and go, well, I, I, I did serve in prison, and I've paid my dues. I'm all paid up. Okay? It's paid in full. I'm, they would post the crime above the head of the guilty as a warning to others not to commit the crime. I mean, and you got to remember, guys, this is not, you know, nobody had cell phones. Nobody had, you know, we could look it up on the internet. Okay? And so if somebody was going to be put to death for killing someone, they posted that on their cross. So that everybody could see and go, ooh, I don't. Okay, what's he being, oh, he's being killed for killing somebody. Okay, I don't want to do that. In this verse, folks, we see that God not only canceled our debt, but listen, he canceled the legal demands that came with the Old Testament law. Did you hear that? Look, look what it says. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us, my own, my own debt, my own sin that gives me... With its legal demands. What are the legal demands? Be righteous before God. Fulfill the law. Those are the, those are the legal demands. It's canceled. I don't have any legal demands anymore. I have spiritual demands to just live in Jesus. Here we get this picture of us having our sins listed and nailed to the cross for Christ to die for. But we keep putting them back in our pockets. We keep kind of tearing them back off and not leaving them there so that Satan and others can continue to accuse us. Look at verse 15. In verse 15, it says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. I love, I love this part. I love it all, but this is really cool. Okay? He disarmed our spiritual enemies. In this public display of crucifixion, Jesus disarmed our enemies and he shamed them in public. Have you ever thought about that? 
I, I mean, Jesus didn't just die for our sins and offer us forgiveness and pay the penalty. He basically broke the back of Satan right there. I mean, on the cross, Satan thought he was winning. It's like, look at this, dude. We're getting him. He's going down. He had no idea that what Jesus was doing on the cross would break forever his power over us. Where we were once the puppets and victims of Satan's temptations and powers, we can now live victorious lives in Christ. If we'll just let our sins remain on the cross where God nailed them, we'd live much more victorious lives. But we keep taking them down, putting them back in our pocket. We say, Jesus, forgive me for this, but I might want to do it later, so I'm going to keep it right here. Folks, we aren't going to experience any spiritual freedom that way. God wants you to experience spiritual freedom, free from guilt over the past, free from the accusations of the enemy, free from the frustration that comes from recurring sinful patterns. He wants you to experience that, folks. I want you to experience that. We want you to experience that. But that can only come from giving your life to Christ, receiving him as your Savior, putting your faith and trust in him and what he did on the cross, and then living in him. You nail those things to the cross, and then you walk away and leave them there. That's really the way to do it. Here in just a few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. We're going to do it in a very unique way today. Each of you has a post-it note there in your chair. I want you to take it. And before you write, listen to all of it, please. If you want to write on that little slip of paper some sin that Satan keeps throwing up at you, Listen, I know some of you in this room are not living up to your potential uh, uh, in Christian ministry to others, which God created you for, because you can't get over something you did five years ago, 10 years ago, 25 years ago. Folks, today's the day to just let it go. Just, let it, just receive the forgiveness that God's already given you. So if you want to write that particular sin on that post-it, you can do that. If you want to, if you're afraid somebody will see that, if you just want to write your name and then, you know, some kind of a way that you can code it or whatever, you feel free to do that. If there's just some reoccurring sin that you're like, I just can't, I just can't seem to get victory in this area, I just can't seem to get over it, write that down. And then in a few minutes, when we start uh, this part of our service, we're going to ask you to come up one of these two aisles. And if you're on this side, just go to the back first and come up one of these two aisles. And then we want you to take that, whatever that is that you've put on there, and we want you to just nail that on the cross. Okay? Folks, I, this is symbolic. There's no great spiritual thing that's going on here. But I want you to, I want you to get a visionary and spiritual freedom like God wants you to, is to nail that thing to the cross and then walk away. In fact, if you want to look back at it, as it fades into the distance, that's really, that's, that'd be awesome. Leave it right there because what we keep doing is go, okay, I kneel up there. Thank you, Jesus, for your forgiveness. I might need that later. And we allow Satan to beat us up or we beat ourselves up. 
or we just continue over and over with the same sin. Folks, you're never going to experience the freedom that God wants you to experience. You're never going to experience the freedom that Jesus bought you unless you just leave it at the cross. So what we're going to do here in just a couple minutes, Brian and the ladies are going to come up to sing while we do this. And here in just a minute, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, I want you to just everybody to stand where they are. Come across this way. We've got several hammers here, so several of you can do that at the same time. And then walk right over here and take the Lord's Supper. So you come here, you leave your sin right here at the cross, and then you walk over here and you understand and remember that Jesus gave you his body and his blood to pay for your freedom, to buy you exactly the spiritual freedom that God wants you to experience. Folks, I want this to be a meaningful time for you. Think about what you're doing. These are just symbols, but God wants us to use symbols to get across the deep spiritual theological truths and sear them into our brains so that they will affect the way we think. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to just symbolize the nailing of our past sins, our present sins, the sins that we're struggling with onto the cross to just really embrace the truth that they've all been forgiven. Your mercy and your grace are so incredible that you would love and send your son to die for people like us is just amazing. God, help this time be meaningful for us. Sear it into our brains so that we'll remember the next time that Satan whispers into our ear, you can't do that kind of ministry because I know what you did five years ago. Or when we begin to beat ourselves up and say, I'll never amount to anything because I know what I've done. Nobody around me in this room knows what I've done. But I know, and I can't amount to anything. When we begin to hear that in our minds, God, help us to remember what it is we're about to do and help us overcome those things. And then, God, if there's a sin that we just seem to not be able to let go of, I pray today that as we nail it to the cross and we walk away, that we don't reach behind us and pull it off, put it in our pocket, but we leave it there. We put it into it. We really rest and rely on your spirit in us to give us victory over that sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.